Hey there, once upon a crime fans, this is Mike Brown from the Dark Poutine Podcast. I just want to congratulate Esther and Once Upon a Crime for their 100th episode. We dig what you do, and we hope that you keep doing it. Wishing you another 100 and 100 after that. Congratulations and happy anniversary. Congratulations on your 100th episode, Esther. It's very amazing, and I'm glad that you've been so successful and keep growing every day. This is Justin from The Generation Y. This podcast details true crime cases. It contains adult themes and may contain descriptions of violence. It is not intended for children. Listener discretion is advised. Thank you for joining me for today's episode of Once Upon a Crime. So far in this series, I've taken you around the world to discover stories of writers and authors who have committed murder. In Chapter 1, I took you to Japan for a story about a cannibal killer. Then in Chapter 2, we found out about a popular author in the Netherlands who was also a wife killer. In this chapter, I'll discuss an infamous crime from New Zealand. In this third installment of Written in Blood, I'll tell you the story of a woman who was one of the most successful crime fiction authors in history. She has sold over 25 million books worldwide and is a prolific writer. She has written almost 90 novels, six short story collections and anthologies, and one nonfiction book to date. But this author has kept a deep, dark secret about her past, hidden for 40 years, until a movie version of that story was released in 1994, bringing the whole sordid story back to light. This case will be told in two parts. This is the story of Anne Perry. On June 22, 1954, around 3.30 p.m., Agnes Ritchie was working inside her tea shop located in Victoria Park, just south of the city of Christchurch, New Zealand. Suddenly, two girls came bursting through the doors. One girl was short and stocky with dark curly hair. The other was tall with long, light brown hair. They both appeared to be in their mid-teens. They were shouting and were in such a state that at first Agnes couldn't make out what they were trying to tell her. They had blood splattered on their faces and in their hair, and it seemed to be literally dripping from their hands and arms. She tried asking them if they were injured. Finally, she understood one to say, Mummy's been hurt. She's terribly hurt. Then, she's dead. Agnes sent someone to fetch her husband while she tried to calm the girls down and get more details. She was able to ascertain that the mother of the shorter girl was lying injured on the steep path located beyond the caretaker's house. Sightseers in the park often took this secluded path to get to a picturesque viewpoint overlooking the park grounds. Kenneth Ritchie, Agnes's husband, and another employee asked the girls to lead them to the injured woman. The girls pleaded with them not to make them go back. They seemed very distressed. Kenneth and the other employee were able to convince the shorter girl to at least go as far as the start of the path and point them in the general direction. As they walked, they couldn't fail to notice the blood splattered on the girl's face and soaking her left hand. The sleeve of her coat was dripping with it. As she pointed to the area where she said they'd last been, she explained that her mother had slipped and fallen and hit her head on a rock. The two men exchanged a glance between them, but continued down the path. The girl left the men on the pathway and returned to the tea room. 
The men continued down the path for another quarter mile before they reached a woman lying on her back. Her head was caved in, and blood and gore covered her head and face. She had bled so much there was a river of blood pooling around her, which then ran down the path for several feet. What the men didn't see were any rocks or other hard surfaces she could have hit her head on, as the girls had claimed. No matter, they thought, as this was definitely no accident. This woman had been the victim of a vicious assault. No sooner had they shared this thought than they caught sight of a half of a brick lying no more than a foot or so from the woman's head, also covered in blood. This was clearly the murder weapon. The woman's skirt was hiked up a little past her thighs, and for modesty, the men pulled it down to cover her, but touched nothing else at the scene. While it was obvious that she was dead, they checked the woman for signs of life. Of course, there were none. She was beyond help. Kenneth Ritchie ran back up to the tea room to phone the police, while his assistant stayed with the body. Back at the tea room, Agnes realized that she recognized the girls. They had come in and had tea with an older woman, presumably the one who'd had the accident, just a short time before. They had laughed and chatted amiably before the woman paid the bill, and they'd left for their walk through the park. Agnes asked their names to call their families. The shorter girl identified herself as Pauline Yvonne Reaper. The taller girl said her name was Juliet Hume. Her father was Dr. Henry Hume, the rector of nearby Canterbury University in Christchurch. Agnes called Dr. Hume at the university, telling him that his daughter's friend Pauline's mother had been in an accident. He said he'd come pick them up immediately. Agnes kept trying to ask the girls how the accident had happened. Pauline said that her mother had slipped on a plank and hit her head on a brick. Her head kept banging and banging as it fell, she said. She said they'd tried to pick her up to move her, and she'd fallen again. She hoped they hadn't harmed her further when they tried to help her. Don't talk about it. I can't bear to talk about it, Juliet shrieked. In the meantime, Juliet urgently wanted to wash the blood off her hands. She was pacing and looking out of the windows, continually asking no one in particular what was taking her father so long. She wanted to leave this horrible place. Pauline was very quiet, almost calm, Agnes observed. In an attempt to distract the distressed Juliet, she led the girls to a washroom to wash the blood from their hands and face. She brought them clean towels to dry off with, and as she was walking away, she heard the girls giggling. Oh dear, isn't she nice, Juliet remarked as they chuckled. Of course, the Richies were immediately suspicious of the girls. The amount of blood on their hands, faces, and clothes didn't fit the claim of this being an accident. Combined with the bloody brick and the woman's bashed in skull, all signs pointed to murder, with these girls as prime suspects. The Richies would report these suspicions to the first officers on the scene. The ambulance arrived, and while the attendants went to the scene, Dr. Hume arrived to pick up the girls. He stopped only long enough to give his name to Kenneth Ritchie's assistant before driving off. The police arrived soon after they'd left. It was now just after 4 p.m. Henry Hume returned with the girls to the Hume's 16-room stone mansion named Ilem in Christchurch. His wife Hilda was shocked at the sight of the girls covered in blood. Henry explained to her what the girls had told him. Mrs. Reaper had fallen on some rocks in the park and was badly injured and possibly dead. Looking at the girls, 
Hilda considered that there must be more to the story, but didn't stop to find out. She sprang into action. First, she drew the girls a hot bath and had them strip off all their bloody clothes. Pauline's coat sleeve was soaked with blood, a full six inches up from the cuff. Hilda shuddered. She called Bill Perry to help, as Henry seemed to be frozen in shock and was worthless to her in that moment. Perry lived in the guest house on the property. She told him to bring a tray with hot tea for the girls and then sent him to take the bloody coats to the dry cleaner around the corner. He assumed that she'd asked him to do so because she didn't want the girls, who were possibly in a state of shock, to see them and become re-traumatized. Hilda hand-washed their other clothes. She then put the girls to bed in Juliet's room. A few minutes later, the girls called to her, saying they were hungry. She brought them some sandwiches, which they ate, and then went back to bed. When Bill Perry returned, he looked in on the girls. They were in bed, but not asleep. Pauline was quiet, but Juliet was tossing and turning. He gave them both a sedative and did not ask any questions. The girls soon fell asleep. Back at the crime scene, Detective Sergeant Archie Tate and Senior Detective McDonald Brown began their investigation. They found a stocking that was knotted at the ankle and torn at the toe end. The half-brick piece was determined to have been used inside the stocking as the weapon. The woman had been struck with it so many times and with such force that the brick had torn through the stocking. The killer or killers had then picked up the brick and continued the attack until Mrs. Reaper was dead. The victim was identified as 46-year-old Honora Parker Reaper of Christchurch. Honora, called Nora, was the wife of Herbert Burt Reaper. Mr. Reaper was a manager at Dennis Brothers, a fish wholesale business. Bert and Nora had four children, three still living. Pauline, called by her middle name Yvonne by her family, was their thirdborn and had just turned 16. Their firstborn had died just after birth. Their eldest daughter, Wendy, was a year older than Pauline. Nora had given birth to their fourth child when she was 42 years old. Pauline was already 11 when her younger sister, Rosemary, was born. Rosemary was born with Down syndrome, and had severe mental disabilities. She had been living at Templeton Farm, a residence for the disabled, since she was four years old. The family visited Rosemary every Sunday, and she came home for weekend visits periodically. Detectives determined that Nora had put up a terrific fight. She'd been hit with the brick when it was inside the makeshift sling, and hit again with the brick by itself. Marks around her neck suggested that she'd been held down by the throat while being hit some more, when she'd perhaps been too slow to die. She had defensive wounds on her hands, and her pinky finger had been broken. This was a vicious attack, and Mrs. Reaper's death had not come easily. The detectives were shocked at the crime. Violent crime was rare in Christchurch, and the fact that their suspects were two young girls was unbelievable. Bert Reaper had been called, and he arrived at the tea room to be informed of his wife's death. He was still reeling from the news that his wife had been murdered when the detectives asked for his permission to question his daughter Pauline. He was only able to nod in consent. Detectives set out for Elam to question the girls at 7.30 p.m. Detectives knew Dr. and Mrs. Hume by reputation. Henry Rainsford Hume, age 46, was not only the rector of Canterbury University, but he was also one of England's leading mathematical scientists. 
He'd been part of the team who engineered the British H-bomb during World War II. By the end of the war, he was Director of Operational Research at the Admiralty and subsequently became Scientific Advisor to the British Air Ministry. He had visited the United States as an advisor on the Manhattan Project for the construction of the U.S. nuclear bomb. He left England in 1948 to become rector at Canterbury in New Zealand. Hilda Hume had been born Hilda Rivoli in Onick, Northumberland, England, the daughter of a Presbyterian minister. She married Henry in 1937 and moved to London. Their first child, Juliet Marion, was born in Greenwich on October 28, 1938. When Juliet was five, her younger brother Jonathan was born. Hilda was graceful and charming and was a social butterfly. Henry, her polar opposite, was intellectual and an introvert. Some criticized Hilda as one who put on airs or acted above her station. It appears to be true that Hilda always aspired to be part of high society. So it must have pleased her greatly when her husband was offered the position at the university, complete with a mansion that served as the rector's residence. Hilda quickly made connections with some of Christ Church's society women as she preferred women who were cultured and active in the community. One of her friends, Helen Holmes, was involved in radio broadcasting. Soon after Hilda arrived in Christchurch, she'd been asked to serve on the Marriage Guidance Council. This organization worked with couples who were having marital problems, offering counsel and support to them with the goal of keeping families together. Because of this, Hilda's friend Helen thought it would be a fine idea for Hilda to host a regular women's radio program for the local station 3YA. Listeners would send in problems they were having in their families, and Hilda and her co-host Eileen Saunders would address them on the show. The show, called Candid Comment, was very popular, and Hilda and Eileen became local celebrities. Now detectives were greeted at the rector's residence. They had called ahead to announce their imminent arrival. Upon hearing this, Hilda went to Juliet's room and gathered up an armful of notebooks. Juliet liked to write, and had been telling everyone she was in the process of writing a novel. Hilda quickly flipped through the notebooks before taking them away to be hidden in a safe place. She didn't want anything embarrassing to get out, she would later say. The next day, she would have them burned. Detectives spoke with Dr. and Mrs. Hume, while another took Bill Perry aside. He told Perry about the terrible injuries Mrs. Reaper had suffered, and that it could not have been an accident the way the girls had said. He told him about the bloody brick. Perry immediately confessed that he'd taken the girls' coats to the dry cleaners. It seemed that the account of the terrible crime, and the girls' likely part in it, helped him make the decision not to cover for them. Dr. Hume set about to defend his daughter, Juliet. He'd spoken to her, he said, and she'd explained that she had not been present when Mrs. Reaper fell. She'd been walking ahead on the path, and only saw Mrs. Reaper after she heard a cry and ran back to find her on the ground, bloody and unconscious. Detective Brown interviewed Pauline first. She was still in bed in Juliet's room when they questioned her. She told them of taking the bus earlier that day with Juliet and her mother to go on an outing in Victoria Park. They'd had tea in the cafe and then walked down the path almost to the bottom of the hill before turning back. Juliet was walking ahead, about six feet, on the return. She herself was behind Juliet, and her mother was at the rear. At some point, 
her mother tripped or stumbled on a wooden plank. She fell, hitting her head on some rocks. She mentioned seeing half a brick among the rocks. She and Juliet tried to lift her bleeding mother, but they dropped her. They ran back to the tea shop to tell someone her mother was dead. Wait, the detectives asked. How did she know she was dead? Because there was so much blood, Pauline cried. Asked about the stocking they'd found, Pauline first said that she didn't wear stockings and she hadn't seen one there. Then she backtracked. Yes, she did have a stocking. It was in her purse. She now explained that sometimes she carried an old one in her bag. She'd used it to wipe up the blood. The detectives then returned to Bill Perry and told him what they'd just heard. Pauline had contradicted Juliet's claim that she hadn't been present at the time of Mrs. Reaper's death. Hilda was asked to call Juliet, who was sitting in the drawing room in front of the fire, to be questioned. At first, she told detectives the same account Pauline had. Mrs. Reaper had slipped. They'd gotten blood on them trying to help her. Now, detectives wondered if she wasn't covering for her friend. They told her that they didn't suspect her and didn't even think she'd been there when Mrs. Reaper was injured, but they needed her to tell them what she knew. They left Juliet alone for a few minutes with her mother and Bill Perry. Perry explained to Juliet what the detectives had told him. They suspected Mrs. Reaper had been murdered. They had the murder weapon and knew the injuries she'd sustained couldn't have been caused accidentally. It was time for her to come clean and tell the truth. Juliet decided to make a statement. She had gone down the path with Mrs. Reaper and Pauline, she began. On the way back, she'd gone ahead. At some point, she heard someone. Pauline or her mother, she wasn't sure, call out to her. She'd responded that she was coming, but didn't go immediately. She explained that on the way down the path, she had found a pink stone and put it in her pocket. Then on the way back up, she had stopped again at the same spot. Since the stone looked like it had come from a ring, she wanted to see if she could find the rest of it. When she finally headed back, she found Pauline with Mrs. Reaper, who was bloody and on the ground. She'd told the lady at the tea shop that she'd been with Pauline when her mother had her accident because she thought they may have quarreled, as they often did, and she wondered whether Pauline might have struck her mother in anger. Out of loyalty to her friend, Juliet said she had told the first story, but it wasn't true. She hadn't been there. She said she hadn't seen a brick or a stocking. To the adults gathered there, this made sense. Juliet was from a respected family, and appeared to be a reasonable and intelligent girl. Pauline, however, was a rougher sort. Her father was a fishmonger, and they lived in a ramshackle house on the outskirts of town. It was impossible for them to believe that a girl of Juliet's class could have anything to do with the gruesome and horrific crime scene they'd just come from. They returned to Pauline and announced, You have been suspected of having murdered your mother. You need not say anything. Anything you say will be taken down and may be used in evidence. They then asked her for the truth. Pauline now admitted that she had assaulted her mother using the half brick that had been tied into a stocking. She had brought the brick to the park in her bag along with the stocking. She would not answer when they asked why she had killed her mother. When they asked her how many times she'd hit her, Pauline answered, I don't know, a great many times I should imagine. She was completely calm and unemotional. She insisted that her friend knew nothing about it and that Juliet had been elsewhere when she'd struck and killed her mother. 
Pauline was arrested and taken to Central Police Station to be placed into one of the only two cells reserved for women. Ironically, Pauline's house was located only a few hundred yards from the police station. Bert Reaper, now a widower, was called to the police station for an interview. Before they began, Bert had a confession to make. He and his wife, Nora, were not legally married. No one knew this, not even his children. Bert married a woman named Louisa in 1915, and they'd had two sons. He was unhappily married, he told them, and began an affair with Honora Parker, who worked as a secretary at the accounting firm where he was a bookkeeper. Nora was 14 years younger than he. Bert left his wife and children in 1931, when his oldest son was 14, and settled with Nora in Christchurch. He decided it was far enough away from his wife and children to start a new life with his mistress, who was now called Mrs. Reaper. Before long, police came knocking on their door with a warrant for his arrest. He was being charged with failure to maintain support for his wife and children. While he could have been given a sentence of six months to a year in prison, it seems that he must have come up with the money he owed in arrears because there's no record of a court appearance. As for the subsequent support payments, the government had begun providing benefits for deserted wives after the Depression hit the economy, and many women discovered they would receive a bigger payment from the government than they could have received from the husbands who'd skipped out on them. As a result, many stopped reporting their deadbeat spouses. This quite possibly may have been the case with Bert, because he and Nora were able to purchase a home in 1934 in Nora's name. Their children came soon after. The first baby, who died of a heart malformation soon after birth, was born in 1936, then Wendy in 1937, and Pauline in 1938. Rosemary wasn't born until 1949. The upshot of all this, the detectives realized, was that Bert and Nora had never been legally married and that Honora's last name was still Parker. Her children, in the eyes of the law, were illegitimate and were also Parker's. They changed the file to reflect this correction. Pauline was now to be called Pauline Yvonne Parker by the court. Pauline was brought into Detective Tate's office, where her father explained all this to her. She was shocked to learn that her last name wasn't Reaper. Although, name changes weren't anything new to Pauline. Juliet called her Paul, and she'd recently requested that she be called Gina. Only Juliet called her by that name. Pauline called Juliet Deborah. And of course, her family called her none of these names, but always by her middle name, Yvonne. While Pauline was in Tate's office, he noticed the girl writing on a scrap of paper. Like Juliet, Pauline also loved to write. She'd kept a diary for over a year, writing in it daily. She continued this habit even on her first night in jail. She was writing her diary entry for June 22, 1954. She wrote that she had successfully completed the moiter, pronouncing the word murder the way she'd heard it said in gangster movies. Pauline was a big movie buff. But she now found herself in an unexpected place. She also wrote that she'd had a pleasant time talking to the police and ended with this phrase. I haven't had a chance to talk to Deborah properly, but I am taking the blame for everything. When Detective Tate read that line, alarm bells went off for him. Taking the blame? Could that mean that these two teenage girls had duped him? Were they both complicit in the murder? He set out to find the truth. He asked Bert Reaper if Pauline kept a diary. 
Yes, he told the detective. He was sure that she did. Tate and Brown returned to his house to search for it. When they entered Pauline's room, they found it sitting on her dresser in plain view. They took it as evidence. The first entry they read, written the day before the murder, was chilling. On Monday, June 21st, Pauline wrote, I rose late and helped Mother vigorously this morning. Deborah rang, and we decided to use a rock in a stocking rather than a sandbag. After reading this, they planned to have another conversation with Miss Juliet Hume. The next morning, Pauline Parker appeared before the court, charged with the murder of her mother. She was then taken to Detective Tate's office, where he showed her the piece of paper where she'd written about taking the blame for everything. He told her that he took that to mean that Juliet was also involved in the attack on her mother. Pauline then asked if she could talk to Juliet. She told the detective, Let Deborah and me get together and have a discussion. I am sure Deborah will say whatever I say. She will think it's right, whatever I say. Tate was astonished at the nerve of this girl. Was she really this bold or just crazy to think he allowed them to conspire further? He left to arrest Juliet. After he left the room, Pauline was alone with the matron. The detective had left the note she'd written on his desk. Pauline nonchalantly walked over to it and grabbed it, throwing it into the fire. The matron was able to retrieve it from the fireplace before it was burned. Pauline was taken back to her cell. Detectives Tate and Brown arrived at the Hume's home. Juliet was still in bed. He informed her of her rights and told her that she was under the arrest for the murder of Honora Parker. She was taken to Central Police Station and placed in the same cell as her friend, Pauline, a.k.a. Gina. The day Juliet Hume was arrested for murder, she made a statement confessing to the crime. She gave additional details to the detectives regarding the motive for the murder. Juliet explained that she was scheduled to sail to South Africa to live with her aunt on July 3rd. The girls were desperate to stay together. Her parents, she said, were willing to allow Pauline to go with her. Both girls had already left school, and they could make a fresh start together in South Africa. However, Mrs. Reaper had forbidden Pauline to go. They decided the only way to be together was to get rid of Pauline's mother. No mother, no objection, they decided. She told of their plan to take Nora to Victoria Park for an outing. They'd worked out the murder weapon, a brick inside of a stocking, and Juliet had supplied the brick. She'd found a half of a brick, not so big and unwieldy, and wrapped it in a newspaper. She'd given it to Pauline when she arrived at her house, and Pauline had placed it in her bag. Mrs. Reaper made lunch for them, and when they'd finished, they walked to the bus for the ride to the park. Once there, they'd wanted to get her to the path to carry out their plan right away, but Nora decided she wanted to have tea first. After leaving the tea shop, they walked for a while down the path. Finally, Nora said she was ready to head back. That was when she was first hit with the brick. After the first blow was struck, I knew it would be necessary to kill her, Juliet stated. The media picked up the story of the girl murderers and were shocked as much by the crime as by who had committed it. Who were these girls and what was their motive for murder? Juliet Hume came from what everyone considered a good family. She'd had a privileged upbringing. Her father was a gifted scientist who'd served his country during the war, and her mother was a society lady who doled out marriage advice on the radio. The other girl, however, 
came from what everyone thought of a somewhat dubious family. Pauline's father was working class, and it turns out, was not even married to her mother. That was a scandal in of itself. The girl, Pauline Parker, was said to be somewhat odd and quirky. But murder? How had this happened? Yes, Juliet was born into a privileged life, but her birth and early life had not been easy. She'd been born in England at the very start of the war. That same month, the Germans began dropping bombs on Guernica. The major navigation point for the German bombers was just a mile from the Hume's home in London. Both Hilda Hume and her infant Juliet were subjected to constant shelling while living in London. Hilda would later speculate that this early trauma scarred her daughter, perhaps permanently. While this is very possible, what was probably more traumatizing to young Juliet was the amount of time she was away from her mother and father. Hilda is vague about her daughter's early years, but admits that motherhood did not come easily to her. She explained that it was impossible to find a live-in nanny during the war years, and her health was not good during that time. What seems obvious is that Hilda and Henry, who was gone most of the time working on projects for the War Department, parceled their daughter out to others. She may have been left in London in the care of others during the war, while Hilda hightailed it out of town. She may have also been left for a time in the care of her grandmother in Onik. Hilda would describe Juliet as a child that was difficult to raise. She was sensitive and very demanding, she said. She immersed herself in a fantasy world and lived in her own imagination much of the time. Of course, it's possible that Juliet created this fantasy life to stand in for her absent parents and the terror she must have felt during the war years with bombs going off overhead. It's a natural reaction for children who are, for the most part, powerless over their environment to use their imaginations as an escape. Juliet was strong-willed and had a short temper, and Hilda said she often found herself in a fierce debate with her preschool-aged daughter over the simplest requests. Then their second child, Jonathan, was born when Juliet was five, and everything changed. Jaunty, as he was called, came home with Hilda after the birth, but soon afterward, Hilda came down with a fever. Henry was not home, and leaving Julia alone at home sleeping, Hilda returned to the hospital with the baby and was admitted. Juliet awoke to find herself alone and was terrified. She was further distressed when she was told that her mother was too ill to be visited at the hospital. Hilda was gone for days and would later say that from then on, Juliet definitely resented her younger brother, believing it was his fault that her mother was taken away. Soon after this, Juliet was sent away. This would be the first of a number of separations that Hilda would say were for Juliet's health. Hilda told the story of being pregnant with Jonathan during the most intense days of the German bombing. She and Juliet would have to run to the bomb shelter located some yards away from their house. Hilda would run out first, with Juliet following behind. She instructed Juliet to dive under a bush until she got to the door of the shelter, propped it open, and they could run inside to safety. One day, towards the end of her pregnancy, Hilda got stuck in the entrance to the shelter due to the size of her pregnant belly. It was winter, and Juliet had to stay lying in the snow until her mother was able to free herself and the bombing stopped. Juliet, besides being terrified, contracted pneumonia in both lungs. The doctor told Hilda she had to get the child to a warmer climate if she was going to recover. Henry and Hilda decided to send Juliet to Barbados with the nurse, who was hired to look after her. 
Juliet remained in Barbados until the end of the war. She was away from her entire family for approximately a year and a half at the age of five. But less than two years later, Juliet was separated from her family once again. In 1947, when she was eight years old, she was sent to the Bahamas to live with a friend of her parents, again ostensibly to recover from a respiratory illness. A few months after that, she was moved once again, this time to a hospital in the Bay of Islands in New Zealand. It's true that the cold and damp winters in the north could be detrimental to someone afflicted with a respiratory condition. However, it was cruel of her parents to keep her separated from them for so long. It's strange that neither of her parents made it a priority to be with their sick child. Juliet lived apart from her family for over a year before they were reunited in New Zealand in October of 1948. Another question was why wasn't Juliet reunited with her family in England during the mild spring and summer months? It begs the question as to whether she was really sent away entirely for the, quote, good of her health. When Juliet Hume and Pauline Parker met as classmates at Christchurch Girls High School in 1952, they found out immediately that they had something in common. Pauline also had health problems early in her life. At the age of five, she developed osteomyelitis, an inflammation of the bone, in one leg. Antibiotics were not commonly available then, and the condition was life-threatening. She underwent several operations on her leg to drain the infected bone, and she spent almost nine months in the hospital. In total, her recovery took almost three years, and she still walked with a slight limp as a teen as a result of the illness. Pauline had been in a great deal of pain due to the infected bone, and still occasionally had days where the pain would flare up unmercifully. Her parents surmised that it was perhaps as a result of this that Pauline had a short fuse and would yell and scream in rage when things didn't go her way. Pauline and her mother often butted heads as she reached her teen years. Bert, for the most part, tried to stay out of their way. He was a quiet man and didn't quite know how to handle his strong-willed daughter. His wife, Nora, was becoming increasingly critical and punitive towards Pauline, who rebelled by yelling and throwing things. Later, Nora would try to make it up to her daughter for losing her temper by buying her small gifts or doing special favors. Pauline didn't get along with many girls at school. Her short temper caused her to quarrel with others frequently, and her classmates grew tired of trying to please her. Most drifted away, and Pauline, rather than minding this, seemed to enjoy being left alone. She drew incessantly in her notebooks, pictures of fantastical creatures like dragons. She was also very fond of horses and would sculpt lifelike figures of them out of clay. Julia arrived at Christchurch Girls High School to much fanfare. She was introduced as the daughter of Dr. Hume, the rector of Canterbury University. She was tall, slender, and attractive, and spoke in a cultured English accent. She was also brilliant. She'd scored 170 points on the Stanford Binet IQ scale, which was genius level. She loved music, especially opera, and could recite classical poetry. She also loved to write stories, poems, and essays. She was very imaginative and lively, often writing and acting out her own plays. However, the Humes' longtime housekeeper would report that Juliet was also arrogant, rude, and disrespectful to others, including her parents. Pauline and Juliet seemed like polar opposites. 
Pauline short and dark-haired with a limp and a permanent scowl on her face. Juliet tall, fair, and graceful, seeming to float above the other girls, whom she barely noticed. But both were thought of as odd by their classmates. Pauline watched the new girl with growing interest. She could tell that Juliet, like herself, cared not about what others thought of her. She even seemed to relish being considered different from the other girls. Juliet also had no respect for adult authority. She'd even go so far as to correct her teachers and ignore their instructions, doing whatever she felt like. Pauline also hated to be told what to do, but didn't have the courage that Juliet did to defy authority so openly and seemingly without regard to the consequences. The girls were finally brought together when they both had to sit out physical education periods at school, Juliet because of her lung issues and Pauline because of her leg. They began to find more things in common. They both loved to write and make up stories, but Juliet was the more gifted writer. Pauline began to use her artistic abilities to illustrate her stories. They also both loved horses, and Pauline was delighted to discover that Juliet owned a pony. They also discovered that they both loved the same books and poems and were mad for films. They'd both lived inside their own imaginations and in solitude for so long that to find the other as a kindred spirit felt magical. They began spending as much time as possible together, forming their own community of two. Most of it was spent creating fantastic stories and living in them. In some, they were famous opera singers. And others, they were the wives of famous actors living in Hollywood. They also loved to pretend to be living in medieval times, as knights or damsels in distress. In time, they inhabited these fantasy lives, rejecting the reality of their actual lives at home and at school. They also decided that they were both geniuses, superior to everyone else around them, teachers, classmates, and their parents. One poem they wrote titled, The Ones That I Worship, included the lines, The most glorious beings in creation, they'd be the pride and joy of any nation. The outstanding genius of this pair is understood by few, they are so rare. Compared with these two, every man is a fool. The world is most honored that they should deign to rule. Tis indeed a miracle, one must feel, that two such heavenly creatures are real. And these wonderful people are you and I. Pauline began to spend many nights and even entire weekends at Elam with Juliet and the Humes. She'd never been inside such a beautiful and opulent home. The more time she spent there, the more she resented her humble family home and working-class parents. Dr. Hume was a renowned scientist who wore tweed suits and ties to the university, and Mrs. Hume was grace and charm personified. Juliet was enamored of the entire family, but she was especially captivated by Juliet. Neither girl had ever had a close friend before, and certainly no one who had ever understood and accepted them so completely. Pauline had been so very lonely before Juliet and couldn't stand to be apart from her for more than a few hours. When she was, she would write her long letters, even if they just spent the entire weekend together. Juliet had someone to join her in her fantasy world, a willing participant who would follow her lead. Mrs. Grinlobs, the Hume's housekeeper, observed the pair, and in her opinion, Juliet was domineering and treated Pauline as her subject. Pauline, Mrs. Grinlob said, seemed to have a giant crush on her friend and would do her bidding willingly. But not everyone was happy about the friendship. 
Pauline became increasingly disrespectful, rude, and uncooperative at home, Bert Reaper would say. She only wanted to be at the Humes and was angry whenever she was home. She and Nora began to quarrel even more. Juliet's parents grew frustrated when she stopped trying at school and refused to complete the assignments given to her. With Pauline egging her on, Juliet began living almost completely in her fantasy world. She became hyperactive, almost manic, in her behavior. She did only what she wanted, and if her parents tried to rein her in, she cried and wailed. They almost always gave in to her tantrums. Julia and Pauline's teachers would warn their parents that they thought the girls were unnaturally close. In other words, they suspected that the girls were lesbians. However, they also explained that these kinds of intense relationships between girls often occurred at this age. Still, they told them to keep an eye on them to make sure it didn't, quote, get out of hand. At the same time, changes were occurring in both girls' homes. Pauline's father was nearing retirement age, and Nora was no longer working outside of the home, so they decided to begin taking in boarders. The first of several single men began renting rooms from the Reapers. Nora cooked and cleaned and expected both her daughters to help. Wendy was willing, but Pauline often balked at doing chores, since it meant time spent apart from Juliet. In late spring 1953, Juliet once again took ill. This time, she was diagnosed with tuberculosis in one lung and was admitted to Kashmir Sanatorium. The illness was treatable but serious and would require Juliet to spend several months hospitalized. Just before she fell ill, her father had been invited to a university conference in London. Hilda had not been home for some time, so she decided to join him on the trip. Even with their daughter seriously ill in the sanatorium, they still left New Zealand, sailing out on May 28th. They would be away for three months. Juliet did not see them again until the end of August. She spent the entire time hospitalized, only being released a week after her parents' return. Her mother, rather than being aware of how this would affect Juliet, only complained that she'd received few letters from her daughter while she'd been away. Julia and Pauline wrote to each other almost daily, although they mostly did so as Charles and Lance, two characters they had created. Charles was the Prince of Bonrovia, a made-up kingdom, while Lance, or Lancelot, was a soldier of fortune. In these stories, revenge was often a theme, and murder, suicide, and rape were common occurrences. After she returned home from the hospital, Juliet had more frequent tantrums and punished her parents for their absence by becoming more demanding. She insisted that Pauline be allowed to come and visit whenever she wanted. Indeed, it seemed that while before, Juliet had been the more dominant partner in the friendship, after her illness, her dependency upon Pauline greatly increased. Pauline took over, mothering Juliet, and became the one to drive their fantasy life. Juliet seemed even more grateful for her presence and allowed her to be in charge. Dr. and Mrs. Hume gave in to Juliet's demands and had Pauline over frequently, as it seemed to make life with their difficult daughter easier. Pauline's parents also allowed it, at first because they felt sorry for Juliet, and later to keep their daughter away from their male boarders. While Juliet had been away, Pauline had begun a relationship with one of the young men living at the Reaper's home. She'd been caught in his room one night, much to the horror of her parents. The young man had been evicted, 
and they had been keeping a much closer watch on Pauline, which she strenuously rebelled against. But by Christmas, the Humes had decided that the girls were too enmeshed with each other. They left for a family trip over the holidays, and no matter how much Juliet insisted, they refused to invite Pauline along. And then another threat to their relationship arose. Juliet's parents had grown apart. Dr. Hume was at work, or the university club, most of the time, and Hilda was occupied with her work at the radio station and her social activities. Then Bill Perry came to stay at Ilam. Perry was an engineer from Canada who was hired as a consultant in a Christchurch firm. His wife was to join him, but on the voyage over, she fell in love with the ship's purser and disembarked in Australia to be with her new lover. Perry may have met Hilda through the marriage council, but this is unclear. In any case, in 1953, he and Hilda began a relationship. By the end of the year, Hilda told the Grinlobs that they had to move out of the guest house at Ilam because Mr. Perry would be moving in. Later, Hilda would say that her husband had approved the arrangement as their marriage had, in effect, already ended earlier. But others would say that Hilda had a way of bending the truth, or downright lying, to suit her needs. The affair, of course, had been kept secret from the children, but in the spring of the following year, their secret was discovered by Juliet. She awoke one night to find her mother missing from her bedroom. Hearing voices in the guest house, she burst in to find her mother in bed with Bill Perry. Her mother, quick with a lie, explained that Mr. Perry was ill, and she'd come in to bring him some tea. They were, in fact, drinking tea. Juliet, shaking in anger, told her to stop treating her like a fool. Her mother then admitted that she and Bill were in love, and her father knew all about it. When Juliet told Pauline that she could not live with the idea of her parents divorcing and possibly sending her away again, Pauline told her that no matter what, they would sink or swim together. It turns out that what would happen next to the Humes family was determined by Dr. Hume's employer. In March 1954, the university board returned a vote of no confidence against Dr. Henry Hume and asked for his resignation. The man had a brilliant scientific mind, but truth be told, he was lacking in the social skills department. He made decisions without taking others' opinions or reactions into account. In fact, he generally seemed not to consider others' feelings at all. It wasn't that Dr. Hume was a jerk. He simply thought of things scientifically and rationally, and human emotion didn't enter into his thought process much at all. This might be one reason his wife sought out connection and companionship from another man, some speculated. The girls wondered what this job loss might mean. Would the Humes have to move away? If so, they were determined to run away to America. They had decided that the novel they were writing together was good enough to sell to Hollywood for the film rights. They were living in a complete fantasy world, but one in which they wholeheartedly believed. Now with Dr. Hume soon out of a job and his marriage dissolving, he and Hilda decided that he would return to England to look for work in January 1955 after his term at the university had ended. Hilda would stay in New Zealand with the children. Both children had been ill, Juliet the most seriously, and the cold London winter should be avoided. Then after discussing it further, Hilda and Henry decided to send Juliet away once again, this time to stay with Henry's sister in South Africa. Henry's sister ran a girls' boarding school, so it's likely they meant for Juliet to live there indefinitely. 
At the same time, Henry asked the university to let him out of his contract early. He was planning on leaving for England with Jaunty in early July. With Juliet gone, this would free up Hilda to start a new life alone with Bill Perry. It was all settled. Perhaps because Hilda was so happy about how her life was about to change, she tried to placate Juliet by acting as if she had accepted Pauline into the family. She referred to Pauline as her foster daughter. Pauline was thrilled. At the same time, Pauline was becoming more enraged with her mother, who would no longer allow her to spend so much time at Elam. Nora complained that whenever Pauline went there, she always came back more rebellious and disrespectful towards her own family. Pauline took to just leaving whenever she felt like it, and then fighting with her mother when she returned. One day while at Juliet's, Ms. Hume came in to show them a ring Bill had given her. She then remarked to the girls, Won't it be wonderful when we're all back in England? Do you think you will like England, Gina? She asked Pauline, calling her by her preferred name. Soon after, Dr. Hume promised Pauline that he would write to her mother and ask permission for her to travel overseas with them. He was willing to pay her passage, he said, but she could only leave with her mother's consent. Of course, this was never the plan. Why Juliet's parents convinced the girls that they were agreeable to having Juliet leave New Zealand with them is unknown. Perhaps it was just a ruse to keep the peace with Juliet until they left the country. They had to know surely that Pauline's parents wouldn't give consent, and that might have been their way out of the promise. But the result was that the girls now believed that their only obstacle to staying together was Pauline's mother, Nora. It was at that time that Pauline came up with the plan to get rid of her. That will do it for part one of Written in Blood, the case of Anne Perry, and our 100th episode. Thanks for listening, whether you've been with me from the beginning or are a new listener. I appreciate each and every one of you. Patreon supporters will get part two early. It will be available this week. If you'd like to become a supporter, you can go to patreon.com slash onceuponacrime to get all the info. For as little as $2 per month, you can get bonus content, early release ad-free episodes, and more. Thanks for your support. Once Upon a Crime is written, produced, and edited by me, Esther Ludlow. Until next time, be good to one another. Thank you.